Well, the next figure we'll consider in our church history lesson, church history series, actually figures, will be John and Charles Wesley. John and Charles Wesley, very well-known figures in the history of the church. Before we consider their lives together, I want to read from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, and we will revisit this scripture at the end of our lesson. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 12, Paul writes and says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." Hopefully we'll come to see how that scripture is going to be relevant in light of John and Charles Wesley and our understanding of truth. But before we begin, I'll give you one quote just from John Wesley. And this is one of my favorite quotes by Wesley. He said, give me a hundred men who hate nothing but sin and love God with all their hearts. And I will shake the world for Christ. That's a pretty good Quote, hundred men who hate nothing but sin and love God with all their hearts, and I will shake the world for Christ. So the first thing we look at and consider is who were John and Charles Wesley? John Wesley was born in 1703, and his younger brother Charles was born in 1707. So about a four year gap between the two, and they were both born in England. They were born into an Anglican family. Their father's name was Samuel, and their mother's name was Susanna. They also had another brother by the name Samuel as well. But Susanna is the most notable figure in this bunch. Susanna Wesley was an incredible woman. And although we would not agree with Susanna Wesley on a number of things pertaining to women's roles in the church and authority and the way that we work these things out together from the Scriptures... She is no doubt a worthwhile figure in the history of the church herself. And in many ways, it's because of her strong commitment to both pray and invest herself into the lives of her children. John and Charles would grow up under the influence of the devout faith of their mother, and they would both go on to study at Oxford University, during which time they would both be ordained as priests in the Anglican Church. Now, as an aside, John Wesley very nearly died when he was five years old in a house fire. And after this near-death experience, he had this impression that God had spared him for a significant reason. That God had preserved his life in order to be lived and served for God. During their time at Oxford together, John and Charles would team up with their good friend George Whitfield, whom we'll go on to consider in our next church history lesson. They teamed up with George Whitfield to form a group that became known as the Holy Club. 
Now, as I understand it, the title Holy Club is not a title they gave themselves. If that were true, you certainly would not call it the Humble Club if they called themselves the Holy Club. As I understand it, it was something uh, where people were essentially making fun of them, mocking them and calling them, oh, that's the Holy Club meeting there over there. Uh, John and Charles and George Whitfield together. But at any rate, the reason they were given this name as the Holy Club was as a result of their devout commitment to pray, to study the scriptures, and pursue lives of practical holiness. This is the time when they were ordained as priests in the Anglican Church, John and Charles were. But also they would go and they would do ministries at jailhouses and different things. They, would, they were constantly engaged in different levels of ministry. Now here is one wild fact about this group. According to their own professions, at least certainly George Whitfield and John Wesley, and likely Charles as well, none of them were born again until years later. So here they are at Oxford University getting criticized and made fun of by their peers for their, com their commitment to meet and pray, study God's Word, and be involved in practical holiness. And yet none of them were even converted at the time. Now, while John Wesley would become a notable evangelist and is credited with the founding of the Methodist Church, Charles Wesley wrote more than 6,500 hymns during his life. And three of the most noteworthy ones you'll recognize are Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Jesus Lover of My Soul, and Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. Those are but three of Charles Wesley's best or most recognizable hymns. So that's who they were. The second thing is, what was the state of the church during the Wesley's life? Well, during their life, the Anglican church in England was drowning in dead orthodoxy. As a matter of fact, both John and Charles and George Whitfield had the doors to the church houses closed in their faces. They weren't allowed to preach in most of the churches in England during this time because of their evangelistic zeal and fervor. And that would go on to categorize their ministries. They began meeting in open fields. They would go and preach in the open air. They would meet in barns, wherever they could meet to draw a crowd and preach the gospel. That was what they were committed to. And so a short time after they finished at school, um, John particularly and Charles accompanied him, they were summoned to the American colonies to plant Anglican churches. And the Wesley brothers would go on to face many obstacles in their ministry endeavors. The native peoples, as well as the colonists, were not inclined towards the rigid expectations that the brothers had, John and Charles, towards religion. Now, this is an interesting thing, and if you like history much, you'll really maybe be fascinated by this. John and Charles Wesley were ordained priests in the Anglican tradition. The Anglican church is essentially the church of England. Now, they lived immediately, they were ministering immediately leading up to the uh, War for Independence or the Revolutionary War. And so how do you suppose the Anglican Church looked upon the War for Independence? Not too well. And so here was the situation here. John and Charles, John especially, has been summoned to the colonies to go and establish and plant Anglican churches. And then all of a sudden these colonists are declaring independence from England. Now that didn't go over too well within the Anglican Church. And so they had these issues, and actually it's reported that a number, there weren't very many of them, but a number of the Anglican ministers actually fled during the war because the Anglican Church had its loyalties with the English monarchy, who is the head of the Anglican Church. 
The third question we'll come to ask, so that's what the state of the church, quote-unquote, was during that time. The third question is, what impact did John and Charles Wesley have upon the church? As I mentioned before, Charles Wesley was an avid hymn writer, and he wrote many glorious hymns that continue to be sung by Christians today. As far as personal ministry and evangelism, Charles is often thought much less of than John. But Charles was undoubtedly a vital part and support of both his brother John as well as involved in this first great awakening. And you'll recall this probably, maybe, the four of the most commonly recognized names during the time of the first great awakening in the American colonies and in England would be that of Jonathan Edwards, who we considered the last time we met, George Whitfield, and then John and Charles Wesley. There were other people involved, other significant names during this time, but these guys, especially in the colonies, are some of the most recognizable names. And so Charles, though not as well known often as his brother John, was a pivotal part. John Wesley actually had a great deal of difficulty in ministry during his early years. Um, Roughly the first eight to ten years of his labors in ministry were marked by weak preaching, poor reception by his listeners, and even at one time when things got very difficult, Charles abandoned John in the colonies. See, Charles was more, he had a greater loyalty and commitment to the Anglican church. You see, uh, if you go and read the history, you'll find that John Wesley was much more interested in reforming the Anglican church. He wanted to make changes to call them to a different attitude towards the scripture and personal salvation. Charles was much more comfortable with the state of the Anglican church at that time. But at any rate, um, things got difficult in the colonies and Charles actually abandoned John for a season. But in 1738, John Wesley would go on to have a supernatural conversion experience that would entirely change the course of his ministry. Reflecting on this experience he had at a small religious meeting, John said that his heart was strangely warmed. And he says this, he says, I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And so essentially you have this man, John Wesley, involved in the Holy Club at Oxford, summoned or ordained as a priest in the Anglican Church, and then summoned and traveling across the Atlantic Ocean to come to the colonies and begin ministering in Georgia. All of this time, not even a converted man. And he's this committed to seeking to try to honor and serve God. Now we know there must have been a million motives in his own heart for why he did that that weren't right. It's just incredible to see all that he did even as an unbeliever. But then whenever he was converted, when he had this realization of Christ covering his sin, all of a sudden John's ministry began to change and be impactful. His listeners soon discovered a change in his preaching as he was all of a sudden preaching as one who had been made alive. It should not be surprising at all. I believe it was Whitfield that said one time um, that the reason there are so many uh, dead churches is because there are dead men preaching to them. And I suppose up until this conversion point, that would have been true of John Wesley. Now we may consider the controversy I'm about to talk about more in our next lesson on George Whitfield. But suffice it to say for now that John Wesley and George Whitfield were very dear friends, but, and they were co-laborers both in the gospel and the great awakening, 
but they had very strong disagreements theologically. John had even publicly, John Wesley had even publicly declared terrible things about Whitfield's Calvinistic doctrines, openly, publicly. And you can go and read these things, especially probably the best account you're going to get of this is from uh, uh, Dalmore, Dalmore's work on his, either I think it's a two-volume work on the life of George Whitfield. Um, but you can go and read more about this engagement. But I, I will say this, one of my favorite things to do whenever I'm talking with either Methodists or Wesleyans is I love to talk to them about the relationship between George Whitfield and John Wesley. That they were the best of friends, that they loved each other dearly, they labored together, and they couldn't have disagreed more whenever it came to their understanding of the doctrines of grace and election. And I like to try to hopefully bridge a gap. If somebody does truly love Christ, they believe in regeneration, to kind of highlight this relationship. But essentially, here's the difference we see between Whitfield and Wesley that the legacy of the Methodist movement in the colonies was much more prone to emphasizing man's will and responsibilities in piety and religious work, while the European Methodists, who would later be called the Calvinistic Methodists, were much more grounded in their understanding of God's sovereignty. So this is just a short expression of what impact John and Charles had upon the church during their life. 6,500 uh, hymns written, orphanage founded and started. You have the Methodist Church established, uh, the Wesleyan tradition today traces itself back to these brothers. And you have an incredible uh, impact upon people during their lives. So the fourth thing we'll consider is the deaths of John and Charles Wesley. Charles died in 1788, having remained much closer to his Anglican upbringing than his brother John. Nevertheless, Charles ought to be appreciated by us as a testimony of God's faithfulness. And many of his wonderful hymns ought to be sung loud and often today. Charles Wesley, he may not have agreed with us in all points theologically, but he was a very gifted songwriter. And sometimes I think that his song, the theology of his songs, doesn't quite match some of the things that he said because he wrote some incredible music. John, the older brother, would, would die later in 1791 following an, il an illness. And he is reported during his life to have seen at least 135,000 members added to the Methodist Church, including 541 itinerant Methodist preachers. Now, it's worth mentioning about John Wesley um, that George Whitfield died before Wesley. George Whitfield died first. And as I said earlier, John Wesley had very openly and publicly criticized and even borderline condemned George Whitfield. When George Whitfield died, a woman approached John Wesley, who was very familiar with their disagreements, their debating over Reformed doctrine, the doctrines of grace. And she said, Mr. Wesley, do you believe you'll see Mr. Whitfield in heaven? And John Wesley said, no, ma'am, I don't believe I will. And she said, I was afraid you might say that. Wesley said, ma'am, you misunderstand. She said, Mr. Whitfield will be so much closer to the throne of grace than I will. I doubt I'll get to see him which is a pretty incredible testimony after seeing their opposition and their fighting and disagreeing even publicly, but that John had the, the gracious response after his dear friend uh, George Whitfield died. And that's an encouragement to us to see that relationship. 
The fifth thing we'll consider is how should the lives of John and Charles Wesley impact us today? It is likely, more than likely, that both John and Charles would have violently disagreed with our church's understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation. And probably John and Charles never would have joined this assembly. That's probably safe to say. As a matter of fact, if we had lived during the same period, John very well may have openly attacked our understanding of the Scriptures. And yet, yet, unlike many who make up both the Methodist and more Armenian traditions today, both John and Charles had an unrelenting understanding of the necessity of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. They were committed to the proclamation of the biblical gospel. And they both have had an incredible impact upon the souls of many people. John and Charles had a laser focus upon Jesus Christ in their preaching and songwriting. One thing to learn for certain is that God is not limited in His power to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And at the end of the day, none of us are perfectly straight sticks. So praise God that He is able to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And while I do believe, I don't want to disregard the importance of our diligence in defending and proclaiming the doctrines of Scripture, including the doctrines of grace, we must also be gracious to others who may disagree with us at certain points and yet are serving the same Christ. To that point, I'll give you a quote from Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorites, Spurgeon. And we'll go on to consider him in a later lesson. But Spurgeon once said this, The doctrines of grace, the doctrines of reformed theology, the doctrines of sovereign grace, he said, are sweet. But the grace of the doctrines is sweeter still. And his point being that a right understanding of doctrine is wonderful, but the reality of God's grace towards us as unworthy, God's grace towards us is even sweeter than our knowledge of that grace. And that's true for people at times who don't completely understand the nature of God's grace. And so my concluding thought would be that we might be able to rejoice and say with Charles Wesley, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. And I'll close looking once again at Philippians 1, 12-18. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. I would conclude by saying this. John and Charles Wesley, I don't believe, were proclaiming Christ out of pretense or selfish ambition. At least not after their conversions. I think we can say that honestly when we look at the character of these men and their lives and their commitment to truth. And yet... It's right and appropriate. If it was right for Paul to rejoice when people were proclaiming Christ out of pretense and selfish ambition, surely it's right for us to rejoice whenever people who don't completely agree with us are still proclaiming the same glorious gospel. And that applies to others today. And so I pray the Lord would give us 
appreciation for others. The majority of the figures we've looked at in church history have been reformed. John and Charles, however, are not. We'll go on to consider at least one or two more along the way who were not. But it's appropriate for us to give thanks to God for these men He's used, even if they don't completely agree with us. And so with that, I'll close this period of study and prayer and we can gather together corporately. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do thank You for John and Charles Wesley. I thank You for the music that we're able to sing. It brings much glory to Your name. I thank You for what You've done throughout history through the Methodist Church and through the impact of John Wesley. God, I pray that You would give us grace towards other people, that You would help us to love those, all those who love You. Father, I pray that You would bless our time now as we gather around Your Word and we gather around to pray and lift our petitions to You. I pray that it would be a sweet time of fellowship with one another. In Jesus' name, Amen.